0: Welcome to Stan Guns Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or print-impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, L.A. are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so let's start off with, unfortunately, an obituary. From the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 14, 2024, Richard T. Dick Schlossberg III, 1944-2024, to L.A. Times Publisher Presented Over the Paper During Its Heyday by Harriet Ryan Former Times Publisher Richard T. Dick Schlossberg III, who led the newspaper during an era that saw double-digit profits and saw the emergence of the Internet, which would eventually decimate the industry, died Wednesday in San Antonio. He was 79. The cause was brain cancer, according to his son, Dr. Richard T. Schlossberg IV. Schlossberg spent a decade at the Times, arriving from the Denver Post in 1988 to serve as president and retiring as publisher in 1997. The paper was then flagged the flagship of the Chandler family's Time Mirror Chain and the nation's second-largest metropolitan paper with a newsroom of 1,500 journal- journalists and a circulation that topped 1 million. Reporters flew first class and Picasso lithographs adorned the walls of an executive dining room. There are no bad days as publisher of the L.A. Times, Schlossberg said in 1997. There are good days and great days. To celebrate blockbuster ad revenues in the mid-1990s, the Times rented out the House of Blues on the Sunset Strip and hired the Laker girls to perform. Schlossberg then, the executive editor, and then-executive editor Shelby Coffey performed Wild Thing backed by a band. We were without our troubles at various times and having to cut and squeeze, but certainly looking back on it, it was quite a high point, Coffey said. In one indication of the prestige afforded the Times brass in that era, actor and singer Barbara Streisand invited Coffee and Schlossberg and their wives to her home for a dinner with actor Warren Beatty, which the former editor recalled as a pleasant evening. Meanwhile, the clouds gathered in Silicon Valley. Harry Chandler, then heading up business development, traveled to Palo Alto in 1995 to meet two Stanford graduates, David Philo and Jerry Yang, who were seeking funding for a new tech company. On his return, he told Schlossberg & Coffee, I need an hour to tell you what the Internet is and why we should buy a company called Yahoo. The Times offered $1.6 million for about half the nascent company an investment that would have drastically altered the newspaper's history, but the Yahoo's founders backed out. Schlossberg was known for showing consideration to rank-and-file employees. He banned smoking in the Denver newsroom in the 1980s, citing the danger to non-smokers, and his his son recalled, and in L.A., he sought out input for big decisions from low-level employees. He was a person who would always go to the source of information, he didn't go through a typical chain of command in a way," said Dixon Louis, who worked with under him at the Times. During Schlossberg's tenure, the Times won Pulitzer prizes for its coverage of the 1992 L.A. riots and the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and was a Pulitzer prize was a Pulitzer finalist nine times. The son of a World War II pilot, Schlossberg was born in 1944 in Ardbar, Oklahoma, and graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy. He served two tours of duty in Vietnam, where he flew more than 200 combat support missions, according to an obituary in the San Antonio Report. He received an MBA from Harvard before beginning a newspaper career. After his retirement from the Times, he served as chief executive of the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, the charity set up by the co-founder of Hewlett-Packard and his wife. He has survived by his wife of 58 years. Kathy, his son, and his daughter Deb Rich Herzeg, as well as five grandchildren and two great grandchildren. After he left the Times, Schlossberg followed with concern as the paper cycled through different owners and many rounds of layoffs. Then Parent Company Tri Tribune filed for bankruptcy in twenty oh eight, and the newsroom dwindled before for, below 400 journalists, before the soon Shung family returned the paper to local ownership in 2018. Schlossberg and four others formed a committee to advocate for retired Times Mirror employees and spent 15 years fighting for money due, due them under their deferred compensation plans. It was on principle, said former Times General Counsel William Neese, nice, who also worked on the committee. Dick Schlossberg was a very wealthy man and he didn't need to do it at all. Employees eventually collected about a third of what was owed them through the bankruptcy proceedings, Nice said. That was Richard T. Dick Schlossberg III, 1944-2024. LA Times publisher presided over the paper during its heyday. By Harriet Ryan. From the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 14, 2024. All right, back to Israel. Let's bring you up to speed as best as we can. From the World Section, of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 7, 2024. Hezbollah, Israel trade heavy cross-border fire. Blinken meets with leaders of Turkey and Greece during latest Mideast mission. By Matthew Lee, Basim Moreau, Sam, Sami Magdi, and Najib Jobain. Beirut. Israel and Lebanon-based Hezbollah traded fire Saturday at one of the heaviest days of cross-border fighting in recent weeks, a day after the militia's leader urged retaliation for the targeted killing, uh, presumably by Israel, of a top Hamas leader in Lebanon's capital. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah said that if his group didn't strike back for the killing Tuesday of Saleh Arroy, Hamas's deputy political leader, all of Lebanon would be vulnerable to Israeli attacks. With a risk of regional escalation, U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken kicked off an urgent Middle East diplomatic tour, his fourth since the Israel-Hamas war erupted three months ago. Blinken met with the leaders of Turkey and Greece on Saturday as fears grow that the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza may expand into a broader conflict. Developments in Lebanon, northern Israel, the Red Sea, and Iraq have put intense strains of what, have, what had been a modestly successful U.S. push to prevent a regional conflagration. The crisis was triggered when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7, killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapping about 240 others. International criticism of Israel's military response, in which more than 22,000 Palestinians have been reported killed, continues to mount. Lincoln talks with Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan in Istanbul, <coughs> Istanbul about what Turkey and others can do to exert influence, particularly on Iran and its prox- proxies to ease tensions, speed humanitarian aid de- uh, deliveries to the Gaza Strip, and begin planning for reconstruction and governance of post-war Gaza. Much of the territory has been reduced to rubble by Israeli bombardments. America's top diplomat later stopped in Chania, C-H-A-N-I-A, a port city of the Mediterranean island of Crete, to see Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsokas, at his residence. These are difficult and challenging times, Mitsokas said. Hours before Blinken's meeting... Hezbollah said it launched 62 rockets toward an Israeli air surveillance base on Mount Moron and scored direct hits on its initial response to Arori's killing. It said rockets also struck two army posts near the border. The Israeli military said that about 40 rockets were fired toward Morone and that a base was targeted. The army's chief spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, said the rockets caused no casualties in Israel. Aghari said the military struck the Hezbollah squads that fired the rockets and also attacked Hezbollah military sites. Hezbollah said six of its fighters were killed Saturday, raising the toll since the fighting began to 150. Israeli airstrikes on southern Lebanon hit the outskirts of Qathariye al-Siyad, a village about 25 miles from the border, Lebanon's state-run national news agency said, adding that there were casualties. Such strikes deeper inside Lebanon have been rare since the border fighting started nearly three months ago. NNA also said Israeli forces shelled border areas, including the town of Qiyam. Separately, the armed wing of the Islamic group in Lebanon, the country's branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and a close ally of Hamas, said it fired two volleys of rockets toward the Israeli city of Kirat, Shimona, on Friday night. Two of the group's members were killed in the strikes that killed Aruri. Stepped-up attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea by Yemen's Iran-backed healthy rebels had disrupted international trade and led to increased efforts by the U.S. and its allies to patrol the vital commercial waterway and respond to threats. The Coalition of Countries issued what amounted to a final warning to the Houthis on Wednesday to cease their attacks on vessels or face potential targeted military action. Since December 17, the militants have carried out at least two dozen attacks in response to the Israel-Hamas war. From the Turkish officials, Blinken sought at least consideration of a potential monetary or in-kind contributions to reconstruction efforts in Gaza and participation in security arrangements, according to U.S. officials. Erdogan has been harshly critical of Israel and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the prosecution of the war and the impact that it's had on Palestinian civilians. Blinken emphasized the need to prevent the conflict from spreading and work toward broader lasting peace that ensures Israel's security and advances the establishment of a Palestinian state, the U.S. State Department said in a statement summarizing Blinken's meeting with Erdogan. Blinken also stressed the importance that the U.S. places on Turkey's ratif- ratification of Sweden's membership in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a long-delayed process that the Turks have said they will complete soon. Sweden's entry to the alliance is seen as a significant response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A Turkish official said, uh, said Fidan told Blinken that Israel, Israel's increasing aggression in Gaza was a threat to the region and a call for an immediate ceasefire and the delivery of uninterrupted humanitarian aid. Biden said negotiations for a two-state solution should begin as soon as possible, according to the official who spoke on condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the issues in the private um, in the private talks. Biden also said Turkey was awaiting the outcome of its request to upgrade its fleet of F-16 fighter jets and stressed that the ratification of Sweden's NATO membership lay in the hands of the Turkish parliament. Blinken's day was ending in Jordan, which apart from Israel has been his most frequent stop on his recent Middle East tours. His plans include stops in Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia on Sunday and Monday. Blinken will visit Israel and the West Bank on Tuesday and Wednesday before wrapping up in Egypt. In recent weeks, Israel has been scaling back its military assault in northern Gaza and pressing its offensive in the territories south, where most of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians are being squeezed into smaller areas in a humanitarian disaster while being pounded by Israeli airstrikes. Netanyahu, in a video statement reiterated that the war must not be stopped until the objectives of eliminating Hamas, getting Israel's hostages returned, and ensuring that Gaza won't be a threat to Israel are met. On Saturday, the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza said 122 Palestinians had been killed over the last 24 hours. Al-Aquiza Martyrs Hospital in the central city of Deir al-Bala received at least 46 bodies overnight, according to hospital records seen by the Associated Press. Many were men who apparently had been shot. The latest Israeli dropped leaflets uh, urged Palestinians in some areas near the hospital to evacuate, citing dangerous fighting. In the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus, the focus of Israel's ground offensive, the European hospital received the bodies of 18 people killed in an overnight airstrike on a house, said Saleh Hams, head of the hospital's nursing department. Citing witnesses, he said more than three dozen people had been sheltering in the house, including some who had been displaced. Israel has held Hamas responsible for civilian casualties, saying the group embeds itself within Gaza's civilian infrastructure. Still, international criticism of Israel's conduct has grown because of the rising civilian death toll. The United States has urged Israel to do more to prevent harm to civilians even as it sends weapons and munitions while shielding its close ally against international censor. That was hezbollah Israel Trade-Heavy Crossfire Border by Matthew Lee, Bassem Moreau, Sami Magni, and Najib Jobain. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 7, 2024. Lee, Moreau, Maggie, and Joe Bain write for the Associated Press. AP writer Angel Wilkins in Istanbul contributed to this report. All right, continuing from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 8, 2024. Israel warns of another war to the North by Julia Franco, Sammy, Maggie, and Ajib Joe Bain. Israel. The Israeli military warned Sunday of another war with Hezbollah the day after the Iran-backed militant group struck an air air traffic control base in northern Israel. The increase in fighting across the border with Lebanon as Israel's battle with Hamas militants in Gaza entered its fourth month gave new urgency to U.S. diplomatic efforts as Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken prepared to visit Israel on his latest Mideast tour. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering, Blinken told reporters after talks in Qatar, a key mediator. The escalation of cross-border fighting between Israel and Hamas has complicated the U.S. push to prevent a regional conflict. The Israeli military said Hezbollah fire hit the Sensitive Air Traffic Control Base on Mount Moron on Saturday, but air defenses were not affected because backup systems were in place. It said that no soldiers were hurt and all damage will be repaired. Nonetheless, it was one of the most serious attacks by Hezbollah in the months of fighting that has uh, accompanied Israel's war in Gaza and forced tens of thousands of Israelis to evacuate communities near the Lebanese border. Hezbollah described its rocket barrage as an initial response to the targeted killing of a top Hamas leader in a Hezbollah stronghold in Beirut last week, which is presumed to have been carried out by Israel. The Israeli military chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Herzei Halivi, said military pressure on Hezbollah, a Hamas ally, was rising and it would either be effective or we will get another war. Military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari asserted that Israel's focus on Hezbollah's elite Radwan force was pushing it away from the border. Israel has mostly sought to limit the fighting in its north. Hezbollah's military capabilities are far superior to those of Hamas, but Israeli leaders have said their patience is wearing thin and that if the tensions cannot be resolved through diplomacy, they are prepared to use force. I suggest Hezbollah learn what Hamas has already learned in recent months. No terrorist is immune, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told his cabinet. We are determined to defend our citizens and to return the residents of the north safely to their homes. Lower-intensity fighting along Israel's northern border broke out when Hezbollah began firing rockets shortly after the October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel triggered the war in Gaza killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking some 240 people hostage. Israel's retaliation has left more than 22,800 Palestinians dead and more than 58,000 wounded, according to the uh, health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. The agency does not distinguish between combatants and civilians in its death toll. uh, Health officials say about two-thirds of those killed have been women and minors. Israel blames Hamas for civilian casualties because the group operates in heavily populated residential areas. Hezbollah has said its attacks aim to ease pressure on Gaza. In a joint news briefing with Blinken, Qatar's government acknowledged that the killing of the senior Hamas leader in Lebanon could affect the complicated negotiations for potential release of more hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. But we are continuing our discussions with the parties and trying to achieve as soon as possible. agreement. In recent weeks, Israel has scaled back its military assault in northern Gaza and pressed its offensive in the south, where most of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians are squeezed into smaller areas while being pounded by Israeli airstrikes. International assistance groups call the situation a humanitarian disaster, but Netanyahu insists the war will not end until the objectives of eliminating Hamas, getting Israel's hostages returned, and ensuring that Gaza won't be a threat to Israel, are met. An airstrike near the southern city of Rafah killed two journalists on Sunday, including Hamza Dado, the oldest son of Wayla Dado, Al Jazeera's chief correspondent in Gaza, according to both the Qatari-owned Arabic language channel and local medical officials. Al Jazeera broadcast video of Dado weeping and holding his son's hand before walking away in a daze. Israel's military had no immediate comment. Al Jazeera strongly condemned uh, the killings and, uh, and other brutal attacks against journalists and their families by Israeli forces and urged the International Criminal Court, governments, and uh, human rights groups to hold Israel accountable. Dado lost his wife, two children, and a grandchild in an October 26 airstrike and was wounded in an Air Israeli strike last month that killed a co-worker. The world is blind to what's happening in the Gaza Strip, Dado said, blinking back tears. Another airstrike hit a house between Khan Yunus and the southern city of Rafa, killing at least seven people whose bodies were taken to a nearby European hospital, according to an Associated Press journalist at the facility. One man hurried in carrying a baby and later walked the blanket-wrapped child to the morgue. Everything happening here is outside the realms of law, outside the realms of reason. Our brains can't fully comprehend all this that is happening to us, said a grieving relative, Inas Abu Najah, in her quivering voice rising. On Sunday, officials at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus received the bodies of 18 people, including 12 children, killed in an Israeli strike late Saturday. More than 50 people were wounded in the strike on a home in the Khan Yunus refugee camp set up decades ago to house refugees from the 1948 war over Israel's creation. Israeli forces pushed deeper into the central city of Deir al-Bala, where residents in several neighborhoods were warned that they must evacuate. The international medical charity Doctors Without Borders, known by the acronym NSF, said it was evacuating its medical staff from Deir al-Bala's al Aqiza Mart- Martyrs Hospital. A bullet penetrated a wall of the hospital's intensive care unit on Friday, and drone attacks and sniper fire were just a few hundred meters from the hospital over the last couple of days, said Carolina Lopez, the group's emergency coordinator there. She said the hospital received between 150 and 200 wounded people daily in recent weeks. The International Rescue Committee and Medical Aid for Palestinians said they were also forced to withdraw from the hospital. The amount of injuries uh, being brought in over the last few days has been horrific, Surgeon Nick Maynard with the IRC medical team said in a statement. The World Health Organization urged the protection of health workers across Gaza. Hagari, the Israeli military spokesman, said scattered fighting in northern Gaza was to be expected along with rockets sporadically being launched from there toward Israel. He said Hamas militants without a framework and without commanders were still present. The military has said that it has killed more than 8,000 Hamas fighters. Agari said Israeli forces would act differently in the south than in northern Gaza, where heavy bombardment and ground combat leveled entire neighborhoods. He said urban refugee camps targeted by the military are packed with gunmen and that an underground city of sprawling, uh, sprawling tunnels was discovered underneath Khan Yunus. The Biden administration and Netanyahu remain far apart on who should run the territory. After the war, with the Israeli leader rejecting the washington floated idea of having a reformed Palestinian authority, an autonomous government in parts of the occupied West Bank, eventually administer gaza that was israel warns of another war to the north by julia frankel sami magdy and najib jovain from the world section of the los angeles times monday january 8 2024 associated press writers Franco, magdy and jovain reported from jerusalem cairo and rafa respectively continuing from the world section of the los angeles times tuesday january 9 2024 Blinken rallies Mideast leaders to plan for post-war Gaza. The U.S. Secretary of State says four key Arab nations and Turkey have agreed to begin preparing. By Matthew Lee, al-Ula Saudi Arabia. U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said Monday that four key Arab nations and Turkey have agreed to begin planning for the reconstruction and governance of Gaza once Israel's war against Hamas ends. Lincoln, who was on an urgent Mideast mission aimed primarily at preventing the conflict from spreading as fears rise of a regional war, said Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Turkey would consider participating in and contributing to day-after scenarios for the Palestinian territories, which has been devastated by three months of deadly Israeli bombardment. Those countries had previously resisted U.S. calls for postwar planning to begin, insisting that there must be there must first be a ceasefire and a sharp reduction in civilian suffering caused by Israel's military response to Hamas's deadly October 7 attacks. On what his fourth trip to the Middle East since the war began uh, in October, Blinken said that those countries were now open to such planning and that each would consider its own involvement in whatever is eventually decided upon. Everywhere I went, I found leaders who are determined to prevent the conflict that we're facing now from spreading, doing everything possible to deteriorate escalation to prevent a widening of the conflict, Blinken told reporters traveling with him. Blinken made the comments after meeting Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the Saudi royal's winter camp outside the ancient incense route, trading city of Al-Ula in western Saudi Arabia. Blinken had earlier visited Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, and the UAE. The leaders of those countries agreed to work together and to coordinate our efforts to help Gaza stabilize and recover, to chart a political path uh, forward for the Palestinians, and to work toward long-term peace, security, and stability in the region as a whole, Blinken said. Instead, they are prepared to make the necessary commitments to make the hard decisions to advance <clears throat> all of those objectives to advance this vision for the for the region. Blinken did not offer specifics on potential contributions. Financial and in-kind support from the UAE and Saudi Arabia could be essential to the success of any plan. Arab states have been highly critical of Israel's actions And have eschewed public support for long-term planning, arguing that the fighting must end before such discussions can begin. They have been demanding a ceasefire since mid-October as civilian casualties began to skyrocket. After meeting Blinken during his visit to Qatar, Foreign Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman al-Tani called for an immediate ceasefire, saying the constant images of death and destruction of Gaza are desensitizing people to the horrors of what is happening. This is a big test for our humanity, he said. We are looking for a sustainable future. However, the focus is now on stopping the fighting. In Amman on Sunday, Jordan's King Abdullah II warned of of the catastrophic repercussions of the war in Gaza while calling on the U.S. to press for an immediate ceasefire, a statement from the royal court said. Israel has refused to agree to a ceasefire and the U.S. has instead called for specified temporary humanitarian pauses to allow aid to get in and people to get to safety. Another urgent priority for Blinken is to increase humanitarian assistance to Gaza. In Amman, Blinken toured the World Food Program's Regional Coordination Warehouse, where trucks were being packed with aid to be delivered to Gaza through both the Rafa and Karam Shalom crossings. From Saudi Arabia, Blinken traveled to Israel, and he will also visit the West Bank and Egypt before returning to Washington on Wednesday. The U.S. has been pressing Israel for weeks to let greater amounts of food, water, fuel, medicine, and other supplies into Gaza, and the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution December 22nd calling for an immediate increase in deliveries. Three weeks ago, Israel opened its Karim Shalom crossing, adding a second entry point for aid into the Gaza Strip after Rafah. Still, the rate of trucks entering has not risen significantly. In recent days, an average of about 120 trucks a day entered through both crossings according to UN figures, far below the 500 trucks of goods going in daily before the war and far below what aid groups say is needed. Almost the entire population of 2.3 million uh, dependents on the trucks coming from across the border for their survival. One uh, one in four Palestinians in Gaza is starving, and the rest face crisis levels of hunger, the UN says. More than 85% of people in Gaza have been driven from their homes by Israeli bombardment and ground offensive. Most live in UN shelters crowded beyond their capacity in tent camps or on the streets. Blinken's visit comes as developments in, in Lebanon, northern Israel, the Red Sea, and Iraq have put intense strains on what had been a modestly successful U.S. push to prevent a regional conflagration since Hamas's October attack and as international criticism of Israel's military operation mounts. That was Blinken rallies East leaders to plan for post-war Gaza by Matthew Lee. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 9, 2024, Lee writes for the Associated Press. All right, continuing. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 10, 2024, U.S. urges Israel to engage with region on Gaza. Blinken says other nations are willing to help rebuild, but only if there is a pathway to a Palestinian state. By Matthew Lee, Najib Jobain, and Sami Magdi. Tel Aviv. U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken on Tuesday called on Israel to work with moderate Palestinians and neighboring countries on plans for post-war Gaza, saying they were willing to help rebuild and govern the territory, but only if there was a pathway to a Palestinian state. The U.S. and Israel are united in the war against Hamas, but sharply divided over Gaza's future, with Washington and its Arab allies hoping to revive the long moribund peace process an idea that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition partners sharply oppose. The war in Gaza is still raging with no end in sight and fueling a humanitarian catastrophe in the tiny uh, coastal enclave. The fighting has also stoked escalating violence between Israel and Lebanon's Hezbollah militants that has raised fears of a wider conflict. Speaking at a news conference, after meeting with top Israeli leaders, Lincoln said Israel must stop taking steps that undercut the Palestinians' ability to govern themselves effectively. Israel, he added, must be a partner of the Palestinian leaders who are willing to lead the people and live side by side in peace with Israel. Settler violence, settlement expansion, home demolitions, and evictions all make it harder, not easier for Israel to achieve lasting peace and security. U.S. officials have called for the Palestinian Authority which currently uh, administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank to take the reins of Gaza. Israeli leaders have rejected that idea, but have not put forward a concrete plan beyond saying they will maintain open-ended military control over the territory. Blinken has said that Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Turkey agreed to begin planning for the reconstruction and governance of Gaza once the war ends. The leaders of Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority are set to meet Wednesday in Jordan's South Red Sea city of Aqaba. The United States, which has provided crucial military and diplomatic support for Israel's offensive, has pressed it to shift to more precise operations targeting Hamas. But the pace of death and destruction has remained largely the same, with hundreds killed in recent days. Israel is vowed to keep going until it destroys Hamas, which triggered the war with its October 7 attack in southern Israel. Palestinian militants killed some 1,200 people, mainly civilians, and abducted about 240 others, nearly half of whom were released during a week-long ceasefire in November. The Israeli military says it has dismantled Hamas' infrastructure in northern Gaza, where the entire neighborhoods have been demolished, but still battle small groups of militants the offensive's focus has shifted to the southern city of Khan Yunus and built up refugee camps in in central Gaza. The fighting will continue throughout 2024, said Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, a military spokesman. Since the war began, Israel's assault in Gaza has killed more than 23,200 Palestinians, roughly 1% of the territory's population, and wounded more than 58,000 people, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. About two-thirds of the dead are women and children. The death toll does not distinguish between combatants and civilians. A strike late Monday hit a house in the central town of Deir al-Bala, killing the mother, three daughters, and three small grandchildren of Jamal Naim, a well-known dentist in Gaza. Outside the hospital, Naim cradled a small bundle of white uh, white cloth containing all that remained of one of his adult daughters, Shema, who was also a dentist. This is what we've found of her, just the skin of her head and her hair, he said, breaking into sobs. Naim is the brother of Basim and Naim, a political figure in Hamas, but is not a member of the group itself, residents said. Monday was one of the deadliest yet for Israeli troops in Gaza, with nine killed, according to the military. Six of them died in an accidental blast when forces were preparing a controlled demolition of a weapons production site in central Gaza, the military said. It says 800, uh, 185 soldiers have been killed since the ground offensive began in late October. Nearly 85% of Gaza's population, of 2.3 million, have been driven from their homes by the fighting, and a quarter of its residents face starvation with only a trickle of food, water, medicine, and other supplies entering through an Israeli siege. The UN Humanitarian Office, known as OCHA, warned that the fighting was severely hampering AA deliveries. Several warehouses, distribution centers, health facilities, and shelters have been affected by the military's evacuation orders, it said. The situation is even more dire in northern Gaza, which Israeli forces cut off from the rest of the territory in late October. Tens of thousands of people who remain there face shortages of food and water. The World Health Organization has been unable to deliver supplies to the north for two weeks. OCHA, said the military rejected five, plans aid, five planned aid convoys to the north over that period, including deliveries of medical supplies and fuel for water and sanitation facilities. Blinken said more food, water, medicine, and other aid need to enter and be distributed effectively. He called on Israel to do everything it can to remove any obstacles from crossing to other parts of Gaza. The war in Gaza has threatened to trigger a wider conflict with Israel and Lebanon's Hezbollah trading escalating strikes after the killing of Hamas's deputy political leader in Beirut last week. On Tuesday, Hezbollah said its exploding drones targeted the Israeli army's northern command in the town of Safid, deeper into Israel than previously pre, the previous fire by the group. The Israeli military said a drone fell at a base in the north without causing damage, Suggested that it had been intercepted. Military officials did not identify the base. Israeli strikes in southern Lebanon, meanwhile, killed at least four Hezbollah members, including one who was killed in the village where a funeral was held for a Hezbollah commander killed, in the, killed the day before. Israel said the man killed ahead of the funeral, Ali Hussein Barji, was in charge of Hezbollah's drones in the south but a Hezbollah official, speaking on of condition of anonymity in accordance with the group's regulation, regulations, said he was, on, was only a fighter. There was U.S. Urges Israel to Engage with Region on Gaza by Matthew Lee, Najib Jobain, and Sami Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, January 10, 2024. Associated Press Writers Lee, Jobain Magdi reported from Tel Aviv, Rafa, and Gaza Strip, and Cairo, respectively. AP writers Tia Goldenberg in Jerusalem and Basim Moreau in Beirut contributed to this report. In this, from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 12, 2024, Israel is accused of genocide at top UN court. South Africa alleges decades of oppression against Palestinians and calls for an end to the Gaza invasion by Mike Corder. The Hague In a case that strikes at the heart of Israel's national identity, South Africa formally accused the country of committing genocide against Palestinians and pleaded Thursday with the United Nations Top court to order an immediate halt to Israeli military operations in Gaza. Israel, which was founded in the aftermath of the Holocaust, has vehemently denied the allegations. As a sign of how serious they regard the case, Israeli leaders have taken the rare step of engaging with the court to defend their international reputation. Israel often boycotts international tribunals or U.N. investigations, saying they are unfair and biased. During opening statements at the International Court of Justice, South African lawyers said the latest Gaza war is part of decades of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. The court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that amounts to a plausible claim of genocidal acts, South African lawyer Adila Hassim told the judges and audience in a packed room of the Peace Palace in The Hague. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu decried the case and vowed to continue fighting Hamas, the military group whose fighters stormed through Israeli communities on October 7 and killed about 1,200 people, mainly civilians, and kidnapped about 240 others. This is an upside-down world. The state of Israel is accused of genocide while it is fighting genocide, he said in a video statement. The hypocrisy of South Africa screams to the heavens. The case is one of the most significant ever heard in an international court, and it goes to the core of one of the world's most intractable conflicts. South Africa is seeking binding preliminary orders to compel Israel to stop its military campaign in Gaza, where more than 23,000 people have died, according to Gaza's health ministry, which is run by Hamas. Nothing will stop the suffering except an order from this court, Hassim said. A decision on South Africa's request for so-called provisional measures will probably take weeks, The full case is likely to last years. Israel launched its massive air and ground assault on Gaza, soon after the Hamas attack. Three months later, the offensive has driven nearly 85% of Gaza's population of 2.3 million from their homes. With only a trickle of food, water, medicine, and other supplies entering through an Israeli siege, a quarter of the territory's residents face starvation. And much of the northern Gaza, including Gaza City, has been reduced to a moonscape. Although the court's findings are considered binding, it was unclear whether Israel would heed any order to halt the fighting. If it doesn't, it could face U.N. sanctions, although those may be blocked by a U.S. veto. The White House declined to comment on how it might respond if the court determines Israel committed genocide. But National Security Council spokesman John F. Kirby called the allegations unfounded. That's not a word that ought to be thrown around lightly, and we certainly don't believe that it applies here, Kirby said. Israel says it is battling a fierce enemy that carries out the deadliest attack on its soil since its creation in 1948. It says it is following international law and does its utmost to avoid harm to civilians. It blames Hamas for the high toll, saying its enemy embeds in residential areas. In a post on X after the hearing, Israeli Foreign Ministry spokesman Lior Hayit called South Africa's presentation one of the greatest shows of hypocrisy and referred to the legal team as Hamas's representatives in the court he said South African lawyers distorted the reality in Gaza through a series of baseless and false claims the reaction that reaction came after South Africa insisted Israel committed genocide by design the scale of destruction in Gaza the targeting of family homes and civilians, the war being a war on children, all make clear that genocidal intent is both understood and has been put into practice. The articulated intent is the destruction of Palestinian life, lawyer Tembeka Katobi said. He said the case's distinctive feature was the reiteration and repetition of genocidal speech throughout every sphere of the state of Israel. Ahead of the proceedings, hundreds of pro-Israel protesters marched close to the courthouse with banners saying, Bring them home, referring to the hostages held by Hamas. Among the crowds, people held Israeli and Dutch flags. One of the Israeli protesters was Michael Nevy, 42, whose brother was kidnapped by Hamas. People are talking about what Israel is doing, but Hamas is committing crime against humanity every day, he said. At a separate demonstration nearby, pro-Palestinian protesters waved flags saying, End Israeli Apartheid, Free Palestine, and chanting Netanyahu criminal, and cease fire now. The dispute strikes at the heart of Israel's national identity as a Jewish state created in the aftermath of the genocide committed by Nazis in the Holocaust, during which 6 million Jews were murdered. It also evokes issues central to South Africa's own identity, Its governing party, the African National Congress, has long compared Israel's policy in Gaza and the West Bank to its own history under the apartheid government of white minority rule, which restricted most black residents uh, to homelands before ending in 1994. The hearing continues Friday when Israel, which has sent a strong legal team to make its defense, is scheduled to address the court. South Africa sought to broaden the case beyond the confines of the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. The violence and the destruction in Palestine and Israel did not begin on October 7, 2023. The Palestinians have experienced systematic oppression and violence for the last 76 years, South African Justice Minister Ronald Lamola said. South Africa argued that Israel's actions in Gaza are an inevitable part of its history since it declared its independence. About two-thirds of the dead in Gaza are women or children, health officials say. The death toll does not distinguish between combatants and civilians. Mothers, fathers, children, siblings, grandparents, aunts, cousins are often all killed together. This killing is nothing short of destruction of Palestinian life. It is inflicted, uh, inflicted deliberately. No one is spared, not even newborn babies, Hassim said. Finding food, water, medicine, and working bathrooms has become a daily struggle for Palestinians living in Gaza. Last week, the UN humanitarian chief called Gaza uninhabitable and said people are facing the highest levels of food insecurity even ever recorded and famine is around the corner. The World Court, which rules on disputes between nations, has never judged a country to be responsible for genocide. The closest it came was in 2007 when it wrote Serbia violated the obligation to prevent genocide in the July 1995 massacre by Bosnian Serb forces of more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys in the Bosnian enclave of Srebrenica. The International Criminal Court, based a few miles away in The Hague from the International Court of Justice, prosecutes individuals for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. The case revolves around the genocide convention that was drawn up in 1948 in the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust. Israel and South Africa are signatories. Israel is back on the International Court of Justice's docket next month when hearings open into a UN request for a non-binding advisory opinion on the legality of Israeli policies in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. That was, Israel is accused of genocide at top U.N. court by Mike Corder. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 12, 2024, Corder writes for the Associated Press. Continuing, this is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 13, 2024. Israel rejects charges of genocide at court. Germany throws its support behind the assertion that attacks in Gaza are legitimate self-defense by Mike Corder and Raf Karsert, The Hague. Accused of committing genocide against Palestinians, Israel insisted at the United Nations highest court Friday that its war in Gaza was a legitimate defense of its people and that it was Hamas militants who were guilty of genocide. Israel described its allegations leveled by South Africa as hypocritical, and said that one of the biggest cases ever to come before an international court reflected a world turned upside down. Israeli leaders defend their air and ground offensive in Gaza as a legitimate response to Hamas's October 7 attack, when militants stormed through Israeli communities, killing some 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and took about 250 people hostage. Israel legal, Israeli legal advisor Tal Becker told a packed auditorium, At the ornate Palace of Peace in The Hague, that the country is fighting a war it did not start and did not want. In these circumstances, there could hardly be a charge more false or more malevolent than the allegation against Israel of genocide, he added, noting that the horrible suffering of civilians in war was not enough to bring a charge of genocide. On Friday afternoon, Germany said it wants to intervene in the proceedings on Israel's behalf, saying there was no basis whatsoever for an accusation of genocide against Israel. Hamas terrorists brutally attacked, tortured, killed, and kidnapped innocent people in Israel, German government spokesman Stefan Haberstreich said in a statement. Since then, Israel has been defending itself against the inhumane attack by Hamas acknowledge that various countries view Israel's actions and Gaza differently, but that Germany expressly rejects the accusations of genocide. Under the court's rules, if Germany files a declaration of intervention in the case, it will be able to make legal arguments on behalf of Israel. Germany would be allowed to intervene at the merits phase of the case to address how the genocide convention drawn up after, in 1948 after World War II, should be interpreted, according to international lawyer Balkis Jara, associate director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch. That would come after the court issues its decision on South Africa's request for urgent measures to protect the Palestinian people in, in Gaza, Jara told the Associated Press from The Hague, where she attended the ICJ hearings. Germany's support for Israel carries some symbolic significance given its Nazi history. Heberstreit said Germany sees itself as particularly committed to the Convention Against Genocide. He added, we firmly oppose political instrumentalization. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu welcomed the announcement, saying the gesture touches all of Israel's citizens. South African lawyers asked the International Court of Justice on Thursday to order an immediate halt to Israeli military operations in Gaza, the besieged coastal territory that is home to 2.3 million Palestinians. A decision on that request will probably take weeks, though the full case is likely to last years, and it's unclear whether Israel would follow any court orders. On Friday, Israel focused on the brutality of the October 7 Hamas attack, presenting chilling video and audio to a hushed audience to highlight what happened that day. They tortured children in front of parents and parents in front of children, burned people, including infants, alive, and systematically raped and mutilated scores of women, men, and children, Becker said. South Africa's request, he said, amounts to an attempt to prevent Israel from defending against that assault. Even when acting in self-defense, countries are required to by international law to follow the rules of war, and the court must decide if Israel has. As the two days of hearings ended Friday, Court President Joan E. Donahue said the court would rule on the request for urgent measures as soon as possible. Israel often boycotts international tribunals and UN investigations, saying they are unfair and biased. But this time, the Israeli leaders have taken the rare step of sending a high level legal team, a sign of how serious they are they regard the case. And probably their fear that any court order to halt operations would be a major blow to the country's international standing. Becker dismissed the accusations as crude and attention-seeking. Attention-seeking. We live at a time when the words are when words are cheap in an age of social media and identity politics. The temptation to reach for the most outrageous term to vilify and demonize has become, for many, irresistible. He said. He said the charges Israel is facing should be leveled at Hamas, which seeks into Israel's destruction and which the U.S. and Western allies consider a terrorist group. If there have been acts that may have been characterized as genocidal, then they have been perpetrated against Israel, Becker said. In a statement from New York, Gilad Erdan, Israeli ambassador to the U.N., called the case a new moral law and said that by taking it on, the UN and its institutions have become weapons in service of terrorist organizations. More than twenty-three people have been in Gaza have been killed during the military campaign, according to the health ministry in the territory, which is run by Hamas. Nearly eighty five percent of Gaza's people have been driven from their homes, a quarter of the territory's residents face starvation, and much of the northern Gaza Northern Gaza has been reduced to rubble. South Africa says this amounts to genocide and is part of decades of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. The scale of destruction in Gaza, the targeting of family homes and civilians, the war being a war on children, all make clear that genocidal intent is both understood and has been put into practice. The articulated intent is the destruction of Palestinian life, lawyer Tembeka Nkotokatobi said Thursday adding that several leading Israeli politicians had made dehumanizing comments about people in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority's foreign ministry welcomed the case, saying in a written statement that South Africa delivered unequivocal evidence that Israel is deliberately and systematically violating its obligations under the Genocide Convention. Malcolm Shaw, an international law expert on Israel's legal team, rejected the accusation of genocidal intent and described the remarks that Mikukai referred to as random quotes not in conformity with government policy. Israel also says it takes measures to protect civilians, such as issuing evacuation orders ahead of strikes. It blames Hamas for the high civilian death toll, saying the group uses residential areas to stage attacks and for other military purposes. Israel's critics say that such measures have done little to prevent the high death toll, and that its bombings are so powerful they often amount to indiscriminate or disproportionate attacks. If the court issues an order to halt the fighting and Israel does not comply, it could face UN sanctions, although those may be blocked by a veto from the United States, Israel's staunch ally. In Washington, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby called the allegations unfounded. The extraordinary case goes to the core of one of the world's most intractable conflicts, and for a second day, protesters rallied outside the court. Pro-Israeli demonstrators set up a table near the court grounds for a Sabbath meal with empty seats commemorating the hostages still being held in Hamas. We want to symbolize the empty chairs because we are missing them, said Nathan Bausher from the Center for Information and Documentation on Israel. Nearby, more than 100 pro-Palestinian protesters waved flags and chanted. The case also strikes at the heart of Israel's and South Africa's national identities. Israel was founded as a Jewish state in the wake of the Nazi slaughter of 6 million Jews during World War II. South Africa's governing party, meanwhile, has long compared Israel's policies in Gaza and the West Bank to its own history under the apartheid regime of white minority rule, which restricted most black people to homelands. That was Israel rejects charges of genocide at court. By Mike Corder and Raf Cassert from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 13, 2024. Corder and Kassert write for the Associated Press. All right, let's take leave of Israel for now. And here's an, uh, a special article from the Los Angeles Times, California Section for Sunday, January 7, 2024. Anti-Semitism's Long, Ugly History in L.A. by Pat Morrison. A synagogue moves its services out of its temple out of an abundance of caution. Another synagogue, a restaurant, a Christian church, and government property are violated with swastikas and Nazi iron crosses. An elderly Jewish man walking to services with his wife in Beverly Hills is attacked and beaten with a belt. Members of an anti-Semitic group deliver Hitler salutes above hate banners Uh, uh, they've managed to hang above the 405 freeway. And a mass email makes bomb threats against more than 90 synagogues statewide, and what law enforcement later concluded was a hoax. A tsunami of hate is how Jeffrey Abrams of the Anti-Defamation League summed up the last few months in Los Angeles. Is the anti-Semitism here worse than it's ever been? Hard to say, because for so very long, almost no one wanted, uh, wanted to openly talk about it, so they not most of the, the people committing it, and maybe not even the people who were v- its victims, Fearful that bringing it up would only bring them more hateful attention. In the early 20th century, the Times regularly uh, tooted over anti-Semitism abroad and deplored the pogroms that the Russian Tsar waged. But anti-Semitism here in L.A.? Surely not. Why, anti-Semitism was uncivilized and L.A. was a civilized town. Yet it was here, in places small and large. It often wore pinstripe suits. Jews regularly saw the backs of them uh, if they uh, had the nerve to try to get admitted to certain clubs, fraternities, neighborhoods, and inner and upper business circles. It sounds much like the -the run-of-the-mill institutional anti-Semitism of the age, but what makes it stranger is that Jews helped to launch modern Los Angeles. Their names were notably Frankfurt and Goodman, Lazard, Newman, and Hellman. Harriet Newmark and Mark Meyer's son Eugene, born in L.A., grew up and brought brought the Washington Post and their granddaughter, Catherine Graham, later owned and ran it. Jewish people held public office, created and financed significant institutions, and deserved to be numbered among the modern founding fathers of L.A. In 1888, some were original members of the city's most prestigious private men's organizations, the California Club. But in a generation or two, their sons and grandsons would not be allowed to join. That was the 1920s, when anti-Semitism became more entrenched and codified here. Stephen J. Ross is the USA history professor whose book, Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America, was a Pulitzer finalist. Ross fleshed out the nature of the 20s from me, an era of rising suspicion of foreigners, immigrants, and Jews. Henry Ford gave voice to the sinister forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The KKK was enjoying a national resurgence. The Klan took over the Anaheim City Council in the 1924 election and had chapters in Glendale and Inglewood, where gentlemen's agreements kept Jews from buying homes or joining social groups, as happened elsewhere in Southern California, to members of the Hebrew race. Jews kept a lower profile taking part in civic life, not very often as candidates, but as appointed judges. In Hollywood, here in the L.A. city limits, anti-Semitism had a particular local tinge. Obviously, that didn't affect the working class Jews whose ranks uh, filled the prosperous garment industry and its unions. But Jews meant Hollywood, and Hollywood, as California historian Kevin Starr wrote, was regarded by the new master of L.A. as vulgar. The anti-Semitic snobbery extended to the golf links. In 1920, Los Angeles Jews, rejected by other country clubs, began their own, Hillcrest, which became a place not just for socializing and tea shots, but for organizing and raising money for Jewish causes. In time, the greatest Hollywood moguls and actors were Hillcrest members. Ross directed me to a Kevin Star anecdote, and, and knowing Kevin as a friend, I expected it am- amused him greatly to write that one of Hillcrest's members was the gangster's Bugsy Siegel, who kept his membership until about 1940 when he was either given the boot or asked to resign. The Times' magnificent sports columnist Jim Murray wrote years later that it was because the club managers couldn't be sure those were clubs his associates had in their backs. As Adolf Hitler was making a genocidal science of anti-Semitism in the 1930s, his cadre of American sympathizers were not loath to trumpet the same sentiments. 1935, on two different days in September, at about the same time that the Nazis were introducing the Nuremberg race laws in Germany, a Los Angeles fascist group calling itself the American National Party pulled off an ugly feat and managed to slip copies of an anti-Semitic proclamation into home-delivered copies of the Los Angeles Times. It's more anodyne exhortations told readers to buy Gentile, employ Gentiles, vote Gentile, and slandered Jewish business practices, especially in Hollywood. Your dime spent at the movies may endorse and support further Jewish attacks upon our Christian morality. You can read the more repugnant passages, and you should to better understand the persistence of anti-Semitism in Cal State Northridge's archives. Thousands of copies were put up around Los Angeles County. The Monrovia News Post reported that Pasadena police had torn down posters whose spirit is precisely that which has earned the Hitler regime the contempt of the world for a chapter of brutality that in itself is an indictment of civilization. How did these flyers find their way into the times? What fit within a few days, the paper ran a front page warning concerning uh, complaints about anti Jewish literature of a highly inflammatory and objectionable uh, ca- character that were surreptitiously inserted after the papers left the hands of the Times agents and without their knowledge. The paper was offering a $10 reward for the apprehension of whoever did it. A week later, the Los, Angeles, uh, the Los Angeles Illustrated Daily News headline, Times Victim of Anti Semitic Conspiracy, and named the culprit as the leader of the local Silver Shirts Fascist Group, a printer and former Times employee who engineered the flyers distributed, uh, folded in home editions of the Times. It said police were investigating the Times Mechanical Department. 1939 at least 10,000 anti-Semitic handbills were confiscated at a pro-Nazi costume ball the night before they were to have been distributed and five German-American bund leaders were arrested. One set of flyers was printed up with the casual canards, like calling on Christian vigilantes to arise, calling Hollywood the Sodom and Gamoria misspelled. It bore char- character drawings, you can see them on Truthdig, and evoked slimy stereotypes about Jewish men and young Gentile girls. In a false flag attempt, another set of flyers purportedly created, created by Jews used the same incendiary language against Gentiles. Make the United States a Jewish nation. Make a mass attack upon the insolence of non-Jews in this democracy. Gentiles are not human beings but beasts. The same group had already managed to get to the top floor of a downtown department store and toss handbills out the street be- out to the street below. 1939. Nine swastikas were painted on the doors and sidewalks around a mid-city temple, and police believed it to be the work of vandals who did the same at a nearby temple in the month before. Heil Hitler was dubbed on the tabernacle's front steps. Once the U.S. entered the war against the head Hater of Jews, anti-Semitism in any guise, from goose-stepping on the home front to gentleman, gentlemanly prejudice, was unseemly. After but a resurgence of uh, after World War II, but a resurgence of anti-Semitism, institutional and in, individual, was only delayed, not derailed. It would return in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We're seeing it again, of course. Now, that's the thing about anti-Semitism; it never really goes away. 1960. California Attorney General Stanley Mosk asked a grand jury to look into suggestions of an organized conspiracy to drive Jewish residents out of the resort town of Ellis, Ellisnor. 1962. As two Protestant clergymen were speaking at a Jewish temple on the topic of radical, the radical right, their homes were bombed. Also, as they were speaking, members of an anti Semitic group stood outside the temple pushing onto pastor by leaflets describing Jews as enemies of the country, no better than communists and the United Nations. LAPD Chief William H. Parker blamed the bombings on, gee whiz, anti-Semitism. 1962, San Francisco's Anti-Defamation League concluded that half of the state's clubs locked locked out Jews and that L.A. had a particularly high volume of employment discrimination against Jews, especially in the fields of insurance, banking, oil, and real estate as well as department stores, which is paradoxical considering that many of them were founded by Jewish merchants. 1965. Around Passover, three Tustin Jews found burning crosses on their lawns. The Orange County Sheriff's Juvenile Bureau investigated on the presumption that it was kids, not extremists. It was the latest incident since a Jewish temple moved to Tustin from Santa Ana. The year before, the temple got three bomb threats and someone broke out windows in the the news building. In the new building, nineteen sixty-nine, ten years after L.A. Jewish leaders launched a moral persuasion campaign to open the city's corporate and social uh, bastions and seven years after UCLA sociologist Reed M. Powell began a study of the institutional resistance to Jews, Powell concluded that no matter how qualified a Jewish man was, this was still very much a man's world. He knocks in vain for admission. It was a vicious circle. A man can't get into a club because he's Jewish and not belonging to the club cuts him out of the big promotions. In time, we'd realize the same thing was true of black people and women. 1976, a Wooden Hills Jewish family discovered a cross burned into their front lawn with gasoline. They called the police about it after hearing news stories of a cross burned in, at the home of a black family in Reseda. A month before in Granada Hills, a fire started in a house one day before a black family was to move in. 1981. Throughout the Fairfax district, Nazi slogans were spray-painted on Jewish-owned businesses and apartment buildings and anti-Semitic handbills left behind a Nazi-inspired white People's Party threatened Jews with death and destruction. Your stores will burn and your churches will be blown up and your people will die. Beware. Posters were signed by the New Fuhrer of the New Reich. At a photoshop exhibiting a picture of Barbara Streisand, a swastika and the word Jew were painted on the window. Unsteadingly, this was only the latest and worst event in several weeks of anti-Semitic vandalism. 1982. A three-foot-tall red swastika was painted on the wall of a Torrance deli and restaurant run by a Jewish woman. Two weeks later, the place was bombed. Police and fire investigators were inclined to believe the attack was something personal, not part of an anti-Semitic attack. Torrance was also home to a Holocaust denial group that had offered $50,000 for proof that any Jew was gassed to death at Auschwitz. It lost in a notorious lawsuit the year before. The moral persuasion campaign idea still had currency. After many of these incidents, some rabbis and community leaders soft-pedaled in public. Why should I say one miserable bombing is a reflection of the South Bay community? One rabbi asked of the Torrance incident. 1985. Jewish Defense League members patrolled neighborhoods in Van Nuys after a Hebrew school uh, was burglarized and killed Jews was written on walls and after a Panorama City family found signs reading Russian pigs and Hitler was right on one of their trees and swastikas burned into their lawn. 1986. In North Hollywood, Homes and schools were defaced with slogans uh, like Jew die and a good Jew is a dead Jew. The Long View Jacob Frankfort was the first Jew known to live in L.A. Around, arriving in 1841. More than 180 years later, Los Angeles is home to the, largest, to the nation's second largest Jewish community and a diverse one with people from the world over. Zavroslavsky, a former L.A. city council member and county supervisor, was born here to Russian Jewish immigrant parents. Maybe the sheer numbers of L.A.'s Jewish community gives a sense of critical mass and maybe even a sense of security. We lived a sheltered life because most of the people in the neighborhood were Jewish. Growing up, the only overt anti-Semitism I knew was uh, uh, was against my classmates at Fairfax High, which was 90% Jewish who played on the football team and were targeted with anti-Jewish epithets from players from schools that had few player, few if any Jews, like one Westside high school. We all knew about this, but it was viewed more as bullying than prejudice, although sometimes that was a distinction without a difference. That was in the 1960s, and so was this incident which managed to make a point about the idiocy of anti-Semitism by using the sharpened point of humor. Groucho marks the vaudevillian actor and defectible de wit, uh, had inquired about a membership at a restricted country club. Restricted was the genteel word for no Jews allowed. That black people were not allowed went without saying. He was told that the club would make it accepted for him as long as he didn't use the pool. Groucho's comeback, my daughter's only half Jewish. Can't she go in up to her knees? That was Anti-Semitism's Long Ugly History in L.A. by Pat Morrison. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 7, 2024. All right, now here is somewhat entertainment news. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 1, 2024. TV legend adjusts to unexpected twists. Alzheimer's won't stop David Milch or his devoted collaborators from seeing his new screenplay through by Greg Braxton. David Milch sat in a Playa Vista restaurant, eyeing a small cheese pizza in front of him. The story he was telling is true. I was running bets for my old man and half a dozen people when I was a boy, Milch said, flashing a soft smile at the recollection of hanging out at the racetrack. They tell me bet $10 on the seven horse and shut up. For the big races, it was frightening, carrying around $1,000 when I was seven years old. Encouraged by his companions, in the nearly empty restaurant, Rita, his wife of 43 years, and his good friend John Hallenborg, Mitch continued to weave his memories of those bygone days into de- indelible images, magnificent horses thundering across the finish line and degenerates wagering staggering subs. In many ways, it was a familiar scenario. Telling vivid stories populated with colorful characters good and not so good has been the defining work of Milch's life. That ability made him royalty in Hollywood as he wrote for the classic police procedural Hill Street Blues and created a provocative fare such as the gritty cop drama NYPD Blue with Stephen Bochco and the acclaimed neo-Western Deadwood. But this was not just a casual lunch to indulge in nostalgia. While Milch78 can still tap into his past to construct a compelling yarn, his thoughts are filtered through a degrading lens. In 2019, a he diagnosed that he has Alzheimer's disease. After being at the center of the TV world, his career came to an abrupt halt. Many in the legion of friends and associates who used to surround him when he was a big shot gradually drifted away. I'm losing my facilities, he wrote in his 2022 memoir, Life's Work, composed with the help of his wife and children. I wonder, and not infrequently, is it gone for good, my mind. But as he picked at his pizza, Milch demonstrated that his mind is far from gone. His vibrant spirit and artistry are thriving in a manner that might surprise the families of those affected by the degenerative disease. David Milch has a new screenplay. For more than a year, driven by a dual mission of keeping Mitch's artistic muscles alive and shattering the stigma that shadows those who suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's disease, Rita Milch and Hallenborg have established a routine of working lunches intended to stimulate the TV legend's creative juices. Work is at the core of David's spirit. It's his essence, she uh, she said, sitting next to her husband at one of the lunches. I really don't care about the end result or whether this, uh, this gets made. The idea, Hallenborg added, is to keep David engaged and bring him a source of joy. The result, a feature called The Last Horseman, could return Mitch to the spotlight nearly 5 years after his last pro- produced credit Deadwood the movie was released and another it's another unexpected twist in the life of journey uh, life journey of Mitch who was known not only for his considerable showbiz triumphs but also his notorious dark side in addition to being diagnosed with bipolar disease in the early 1990s his addiction to gambling and drugs did extensive damage he lost millions at the track and on sports betting, as volatile personality made him feared on and off the set. The Last Horseman is the realization of a Milch story that was never developed, a narrative set in the horse racing world that centers on a corrupt gangster and his son and their impact on a young couple. Like other Milch projects, it contains raw language, complex relationships, and unflinching violence elements of the story came together as Rita Milch was focusing on life's work. David would ramble and tell me stories, and it was often the same story, she told the Times. It was often David's story in different manifestations, and the characters were often him and his father. David was abused as a child. It was like all these things that he'd been working through his whole life. There was the outline of a story he would keep coming back to, so she called Hallenborg who had just worked with Milch on various projects. I needed someone who could turn that outline into a script form," she added. She trusted Hallenborg, who had been visiting Milch at the assisted living facility where he now resides. In addition to riding, their bond was built on their mutual love for horse racing. They spent numerous afternoons at the track and their shared experience with addiction. Rita told me that David was absolutely animated about this story, Hallenborg said. At lunches during the next year, the tale was fleshed out. We'd ask Dave, what do you think of this? And it will be like the click of a light on his face, Rita Milch said. I push record on the phone, and it goes from there. It's jumbled and confused, but in there is a kernel of something that's real David. Rita would email the recording to Hallenborg, who would take from that the gold that David had mined and incorporate that with his own voice. David, I want to talk today about happiness for gamblers, Hallenberg said at one outing. Did you feel happiest when you won at the track, or were you anxious to parlay your winnings back into the game? Mitch replied that he didn't feel any imperative to prove myself again. I think David is happy for a brief time when gambling, minutes, hours, Rita Milch offered. His high was being at risk, having everything on the table. Absolutely, Milch said. When he was happy, I was happy, she continued. But no, I didn't enjoy the gambling. She felt the danger even at a, rem- at a remove, Milch said. At times, the memories uh, came flooding back. My dad was a big tipper, Milch said. He would take me down to the winter circle carrying me. Recalling how we got more serious about gambling on high school, Milch said, my old man tightened up the cashier to carry his bets, and I would have a little action on the side. There was so much action going on. At some level, I became an irritant because I was carrying all this stuff, and sometimes I would forget. Although he was quieter at other moments, Milch was attentive as Rita, Milch, and Hallenborg exchanged exchanged stories. Even when he was working at the office, David was keeping tabs on what was happening at the track, Hallenborg said. He would send people to the track to place his bets or pick up money. He would talk to the trainers. Now I'm the wretched wretch you see before you, Milch quipped, much to the delight of his tablemates. Rita, Milch, and Hallenberg were both stunned by Milch's enthusiasm. When they presented him with pages of the script, uh, they, they said his sharpest talent still is shaping and editing screenplays. He'll just start in on them, she said. I compare it to a musician playing an instrument. He just starts riffing. He can still bring the magic even though he'll forget or get disconnected. That disconnection is visible in one draft of The Last Horseman. While making notes around lines of dialogue, Milch suddenly segued into a composing scene for NYPD Blue, which includes exchanges between detective Andy Sipowicz, played in the series by Dennis Franz, and and other characters from the ABC show, which ran from 1993 to 2005. As The Last horseman script reached its final stages with Milch adding his notes, Rita Milch had other contributions and insights on characters that significantly improved the story, Hallenberg said. After those additions, they thought maybe, just maybe, The Last Horseman might have enough commercial appeal to be produced. While the screenplay is shopped around, the focus of the unusual partnership has switched to an idea hatched by Hallenborg that he hopes will lead to a TV series. The story is inspired by two young men he had met on social media, one who has been in recovery and another who has been in and out of prison. He's a fascinating, talented, handsome, smart, charming sociopath, said Hallenborg of The Second Man. I'm 38 years sober, but prior to that, I have plenty of association with people who were outlaws. This is not unfamiliar ground to me. Gambling and racetrack shenanigans are once again a key part of the narrative, said Hallenberg, and Hallenberg continues to prod his former mentor with requests about his racing past and the culture of gambling, using those details to add authenticity to the new story. Hallenberg, who has a 40-year background as a freelance writer for business publications, is open about his own ambitions, keenly aware that any successful project that links him with Milch will heighten his own profile in Hollywood. He has option three screenplays that were never produced. Even so, his work with Milch has an emotional element that's much deeper than any suggestion of fame or finances. Milch helped support Hallenberg years ago when he was... Uh, in treatment for prostate cancer and could not work, once uh, prepaying him for two scripts that were never developed. Their new partnership is Hallenberg's way of returning the favor. From a spiritual standpoint, this is the most rewarding work in my life, Hallenberg said. Yes, it would be great if this would lead to something, but my number one priority is to keep David's engine going. At one of their recent outings, Hallenberg expressed awe at what the trio have already achieved in helping to craft The Last Horseman. Sometimes a little inflection from David, something that he just adds will give insight to characters that was not there before. That is the magic of the guy. Rita Milch reached out and affectionately stroked her husband's hair. See, Dave? Your magic! Milch nodded and smiled. Shows you what prison can do. That exchange could easily fit into a Milch pen drama, although it's hard to reconcile the mild-mannered person who slips $10 to the wages before she even takes orders from the table. Please indulge him. It's important. Rita Milch advises the startled server with the fiery force of nature who once referred to himself in an essay for a young screenwriter, as David F. Milch. Although Rita Milch is heartened by her husband's ability to remain creative at this stage of the disease, she acknowledges a harsher reality. David's mind is getting harder and harder to get to, she said later. It's breathtaking. It's um, it's heartbreaking, that is. He's leaving piece by piece. He lives in a state of agitation brought on by a sense of unfulfilled obligations. He has paranoid moments, which is common with dementia. That agitation can be explosive, as evidenced by an early morning visit to the assisted living home. Hallenborg had arranged with Milch in advance to go over some script pages based on conversations that pair had a few days earlier. But minutes after Hallenborg escorted Milch from his apartment to the com- a conference room, it became clear that something was not right. Milch-, Milch frowned as he rifled through the pages. "'Why haven't I seen this before?' he finally asked. "'Because I just wrote it,' Hallenborg replied. After a few tense minutes, Milch grew more confused. Realizing the strain, Hallenburg apologized. I tried to call you earlier, David, and there was no answer. You said I was imposing when I came to your room to get you, and that was not my intention. Well, your intention is not the be-all and end-all, Milch snapped. I never said it was. You just did, Milch fired back. You just gave me this to read, and I don't know what the f it is. Okay, I apologize for imposing on your morning. Hallenberg said calmly. It was not my intention to do that. It wasn't? No, David. I've stopped by here many times. Today there's friction and bad communication between us, and I have to accept that. I really am sorry for imposing on you. If you were really sorry, you wouldn't have done it. After returning Melch to his room, Hallenberg said the encounter would have been smoother if Rita Melch had been present. It's a mantle she's become used to wearing. In horse racing there's the goat which is to keep the horse calm she explained if I'm there David can reach out and put his hand on my knee and that will make him feel better I see that as my role the calming influence Milch's current situation might be compared to the later years of Tony Bennett and Glenn Campbell popular singers who were able to keep the performing keep performing years after they were diagnosed with Alzheimer's Monica Moreno, Senior Director of Care and Support at the Alzheimer's Association, said Wiltshire's ability to access his talent for storytelling is similar to the experiences of the two singers. His ability to be a TV writer and producer was such a huge component of who he is, Moreno said. Considering the work he had in this area, it's not uncommon to see where they're discussing things he's done his whole life that it stimulates those memories and allows him to engage. Milch first made his mark in the 1980s as a writer and executive producer on Hill Street Blues, which he co-created with Bochco. He and Bochco went on to co-create NYPD Blue, which broke network barriers and frequently stirred controversy with its foul language and nudity. The series was a massive hit and won numerous Emmy Awards. Milch's creation of the HBO series Deadwood in 2004 was another success proving that he could extend his writing prowess far beyond the urban milieu of police precincts and crime scenes. The revisionist Western, set in the real-life mining town of Deadwood, South Dakota, starred Timothy Oliphant and Ian McShane at the head of an ensemble of evocative characters and was marked by brutal violence and toe-curling obscenities, often projected with Shakespearean flair. After Deadwood, though, Milch struggled to maintain his earlier accomplishments. In 2007, HBO yanked his trippy surfer family drama, John from Cincinnati, after just one season, and the Premium Network also canceled his 2012 horse racing drama, Luck, after one season, when three horses died during production. Work was one of Milch's addictions, Rita Milch said. It was all very intense, and that's probably a part of the attraction, this heightened sense of reality. He worked seven days a week for all his working life. We lived separate lives, but it was always intense and scary. We would be walking on eggshells. A typical day now for Milch begins in the morning, when he will read and edit scripts and manuscripts. People bring him stuff to read, and he'll go over pages with a pencil, said Rita Milch, who visits him several times a week. People ask me about him all the time, Hallenberg said, but he doesn't get many visitors versus the whirlwind of people who wanted his attention back in the day, they're scared of what he's going through. Marino said the main thing for families affected by Alzheimer's is that as the disease progresses, there's still the ability for families and friends of the individual to maintain a connection to that person's likes and dislikes. It's important to treat them with dignity and respect. Even though she is pleased with the breakthrough, Rita Milch is realistic about the future. I'm aware of what David is able to do at this point, and what he was able to do when he was at his best, she said. We're at a different point, and we have to accept that. In the final pages of his memoir, Milch addresses his plight in uh, another true story. I still hear voices. I still tell stories. There are those in my head, and another in my throat, and others in my work. There is the voice in my wife's head, and the one in my children's heads, the deepest gifts. The deepest gift I think an individual can experience is to accept themselves as a part of a larger living thing. And that's what we are as a family. Shut the F up, Dave. I still hear that voice, too. That was TV Legend Adjust to Unexpected Twists by Greg Braxton. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 1st, 2024. Right, here's something from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, january second, twenty twenty four. The hands that shape a potter. An auto engineer who got behind a different kind of wheel credits a high school teacher by Lisa Boone. Throwing pottery on a wheel can be a love-hate relationship. Becky Chernoff knows all about it. Many people fall in love with Clay when they take off, when they take their first class, Chernoff says, as she sits at the Potter's wheel in her Pasadena studio. But others become frustrated because it's too hard and decide it's not for them. It's usually one or the other. For the 46-year-old L.A. Ceramist, pottery has been an enduring love affair since her first potter's wheel lesson with teacher John Smolensky at Scanaletta's High School in New York. I'm so fortunate that my art teacher taught me how to throw some throw because in all the years since then, I've never wanted to stop, she says. In what sounds like a surprising choice for an artist, Chernoff attended the Rochester Institute of Technology, where she received a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering. She jokes that her left brain, right brain agility is courtesy of her father Chuck, an environmental engineer who you now paints pet portraits in retirement. While at RIT, she took an elective in Automotive Engineering, a class Chernoff describes as a physics physics lesson in How the Rubber Meets the Road, and realized she loved cars and wanted to work in the automotive industry. After four years of mechanical engineering, I'd finally found something I was interested in, she says. At the end of college, Chernoff moved to Detroit, where she worked on the software help desk at Ford during the day and took ceramics classes at night at community colleges. She also started selling her work in local shops and worked as a car car hunter for a Mercedes-Benz reseller in L.A. who had a restoration shop. When she was laid off in 2012, Chernoff moved to Los Angeles and worked as a car hunter. But through it all, she continued to do ceramics on the side. A membership at Zeem Clay Center, now Green and Bisque Clay House in Pasadena, made her realize that she could work long hours at the studio and produce a large quantity of work to sell. In a testament to her enthusiasm for throwing, she was asked if she would like to teach as soon as she became a member. I taught, adv- uh, taught advanced beginner wheel throwing, she says. That was so much fun. So when her car hunting gig began to diminish, Chernoff decided to do pottery full-time and launch BX Ceramics, pronounced Bets Ceramics. It just happened, she says, I started being a full-time potter without it even being a big decision or a jump. Automotive engineering, however, continued to play a role in the aesthetics of her work as she produced clean-lined plates, bowls, and vessels in the spirit of her favorite car, the 1965 Plymouth Barracuda Fastback. It's like a spaceship, she says. Chernoff ranched out to dinnerware when her friend Elf Uh, Elf Cafe co-owner Astara Kalas asked her to make plates for the vegan restaurant in Echo Park. Chernoff admits now that she didn't want to do it. I didn't have a good method at that time, she says. Still, she made the plates, which led to pasta bowls. That got me into making repetitive sets of things, she says. That was when it all changed, and I started making sets, which I am very grateful for now. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit and sure couldn't go to the studio, a friend offered to loan her their pottery wheel so she could continue to work at home. Despite the generous offer, sure had reservations because she didn't have room for the wheel in her apartment and was worried about the toxic clay dust. Two weeks after the studio closed, she changed her mind. I can't not work, she says. She borrowed her friend's wheel, threw clay out of her living room, for 10 months and met clients on the sidewalk for orders. Despite the economic fallout that was so prevalent during the pandemic, quarantine was a boon for Beck's ceramics. While a clientele was not out of work, but working from home, Chernoff says. People were focused on their homes because they were home all the time and apparently they all hated their dinnerware. People loved Chernoff's minimal stoneware dinner plates, sal- salad plates, cups, and bowls, and purchased large orders without knowing she was working out of her living room. I can't believe the amount of work I made out of my home, she says. I had a tarp, wiped everything down, and was as careful as possible. I did it so that I could keep working. While many potters generally do not like repetitive work, Cherna believes her work as an engineer gave her an aptitude for repetitive tasks without going out of my mind. It took years to uh, get to a place where everything looks similar, she says. It doesn't look machine-made. People have told me if they look at uh, Heath and East Fork but wanted to go with someone local. It is such a compliment. Their stuff looks perfect, but people would rather have handmade dinnerware. Baking pieces that match has become what I like to do. I love, I love seeing the cohesiveness of a finished set stacked per, uh, perfectly. Chernoff's friend, designer A.D. Goodrich, admires the ceramics' uh, drive. Becky rededicated her life to ceramics fully in the past few years. I have never seen someone so determined to make it work. Becky is an incredible maker who works tirelessly to create the most beautiful, simple, elegant dinnerware and glassware. Each day I drink from Becky's mugs, put flowers in a Becky vase, and eat all my meals from her low bowls. In 2021, Chernoff's career took another positive turn when when one of her students told her about a small studio available for rent in Pasadena. I could get out of my living room, she says. It was my first wheel, my first everything, but I had been doing it for so long that turning it into a studio was straightforward. I only needed a water source and a place to dry and display my work. The studio changed everything because I could have studio sales and meet clients. Followed by her mechanical abilities and hard work ethic, I'm a Leo, she says with a shrug, Chernoff likes that her income is under c- her control. Whatever I make, I sell, she says. My motivation is that I am a hustler and a super hard worker. Enamored of the process, Chernoff works nearly every day and makes uh, anywhere from 8 to 45 pieces depending on the size and level of difficulty which range from 10 to a $250 in price. She does everything herself, including shipping and correspondence, but does not make her own glazes. And her work is fired at Green and Bis, and Bis Clay House and Junzo Mori Pottery in Monrovia. The repetitive throwing has also taught her to take care of her body. After a debilitating year of sciatica, she now hikes in Griffith Park four to five times a week and is pain-free. As long as my body can do this. I want what you hold in your hand to be fully made by me, she says. It's my name, Vex Ceramics. I made it, not a company of people. I love throwing. That's what I do. That's why I do it. Looking back, Chernoff gets emotional, talking about Smolensky's influence on her career. It's crazy that I'm doing this because he was willing to teach me how to throw, she says. He changed my life. I started full time about six years ago and never looked back. I never questioned it. It feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, says who who is now in his 80s and teaches at Sh- uh, Schweinfurth Arts Center in Auburn, New York. She is one of the first students I had here at Skantinillas. Sk- she's determined and she's stuck to it. And she deserves success because she's worked for it. And in order to get somewhere in ceramics, you really have to have that drive. And I know she feels it. Like the efforts of many teachers, Spolensky's lessons have reverberated for a lifetime. That was The Hands That Shape a Potter by Lisa Boone from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Now here's something from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 3rd, 2023. After Decries Biker Hooliganism by Nardine Saad actor Ian Ziering was involved in a battery incident in Los Angeles on Sunday during what appeared to be a street brawl involving several people on minibikes. Although the Beverly Hills 90210 alum said he was completely unscathed, the New Year's Eve altercation left him concerned about hooliganism on our streets. The Los Angeles Police Department confirmed Tuesday that a battery report was taken regarding a Sunday incident near Hollywood Boulevard and Highland Avenue. Ziri was listed as a victim on the report, according to LAPD officer Norma Eisenman. KTLA reported that officers responded around 3 p.m. to reports of a fight after a group of bikers was driving recklessly in the area. The Sharknado franchise star posted on Instagram on Monday to address the alarming incident, which was partially documented in videos obtained and posted online by TMZ. The first video was posted Sunday. It showed the 59-year-old TV personality walking alongside a stopped vehicle and approaching one of several bikers who had been cruising down the busy street. Ziering appeared to shove the individual, and as the confrontation escalated, more bikers joined in. At one point, at least five people got physical with Ziering, who ultimately ran across the street with several uh, of the helmeted bikers in pursuit. TMZ reported Tuesday that the incident broke out after Ziering's Mercedes was hit by bikers who were weaving in and out of traffic. Additional images and video posted Tuesday on the site show Ziering's damaged windshield apparently shattered after one of the bikers hit it with the helmet, as well as a different angle of the altercation. A biker reportedly pounded the vehicle with the helmet while Ziering's 10-year-old daughter, Pena, was alone inside the car, TMZ said. Another video showed the actor returning from across the street to comfort his upset daughter. It's still unclear what uh, set off the incident, but the Worst Cooks in America contestant, who, played famously, who famously played Beverly Hills rich kid Steve Sanders in Beverly Hills 90210, attempted to shed light on the unsettling confrontation Monday and alleged that he was defending himself during the altercation. While stuck in traffic, My car was approached aggressively by one of these riders, leading to an unsettling confrontation. In an attempt to assess any damage, I exited my car. This action unfortunately escalated to a physical altercation, which I navigated to protect myself, the actor wrote. I am relieved to report that my daughter and I are both completely unscathed, but the incident has left me deeply concerned about the growing boldness of such groups who disrupt public safety and peace. This situation highlights a larger issue of hooliganism on our streets, and the need for effective law enforcement responses to such behavior. As a citizen and a parent, I find it unacceptable that groups can freely engage in this kind of behavior, causing fear and chaos, while the responsible authority seems insufficient, he added. Zering added that he's always been an advocate for standing up against intimidation of misconduct and that the incident reinforces belief in the importance of personal and community safety. We must address the underlying issues that lead to such disruptive behavior and ensure that our streets are safe for everyone, he wrote. I urge city officials and law enforcement to take decisive action against such lawlessness and provide the necessary resources to prevent future occurrences. That was actor to cry Biker Hooliganism by Nardin Saad, from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. All right, now here's something from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. Disney board gains support. Value Act Capital Management joins Fight Against Activist and Nelson Peltz by J. Clara Chan. Chan, that is. Disney has gained support. From two key players, as it attempts to stave off a proxy fight from activist investor Nelson Peltz, who has emerged as a persistent critic of Chief Executive Bob Iger's leadership. But the firms offered significantly divergent ideas of how they would work with Disney. Investment firm Value Act Capital Management, a Disney shareholder, on Wednesday, said it would back Disney's nominees for its board of directors at the company's upcoming shareholder meeting this year. Disney said it had reached a confidential information-sharing agreement with Value Act. Value Act Capital has a track record of collaboration and cooperation with the companies it invests in, and its CEO, CEO, Mason Morfitt, has been very constructive in the conversations we've had over the past year, Iger said in a statement. We welcome their input as long-term shareholders. Separately, another Disney shareholder, Blackwell's Capital, said it has nominated three executives for Disney's board but has vowed to reinstate any incumbent board members who may have been outvoted by its nominees while also blasting Peltz's campaign. The Blackwell's nominees are former Warner Brothers executive Jesse, Jessica Schell, Tribeca Film Festival co-founder Craig Hadcock, and former Task Rabbit chief executive Leia Sullivan. We call on Mr. Peltz to end his peacocking so that Disney can focus on its bright future and not be dragged backward in time, Jason Aintabi, Blackwell's chief investment officer said in a statement. Disney's current leadership is invaluable to its shareholders. This campaign provides shareholders a necessary alternative to what would otherwise be a solipsistic sideshow. Disney issued a statement saying its Governance and Nominating Committee would review the proposed Blackwells nominees and provide a recommendation to the board as part of its governance process. The move from Value Act and Blackwells come as Peltz's New York-based hedge fund, Tryon Fund Management, has escalated its campaign to install Peltz as a board member, an effort backed by former Marvel Entertainment CEO Ike Perlmutter. In December, Tryon gained the support of former Disney chief financial officer Jay Rasulo, who the investment firm said it would nominate for a board seat at their 2024 shareholder meeting. Peltz began fighting for a board seat in 2022, when Disney was led by Chief Executive Bob Chapik, Iger's handbook successor. Tryon acquired about $800 million in Disney shares, with Peltz lobbying for board representation. Iger returned to the top Disney post in November 2022 after the board fired Chapik. The company had recently reported nearly $1.5 billion in quarterly operating losses from its streaming businesses. Peltz appeared to back off in early February after ICA rolled out a major co- major cost cuts at Disney that included the elimination of thousands of jobs. Months later, however, Peltz reignited the fight with the help of ProMutter. Trying increased its stake in Disney to about 2.5 billion or 30 million shares at the time. Disney has pushed forward by appointing Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman and former Sky CEO Jeremy Darroch to the board. But the refreshed board representation has not been enough to placate Peltz, whose hedge fund has accused the Disney board of being too closely connected to a long-term, long-tenured CEO and too disconnected from shareholders' interests. Disney has not yet announced the date of its 2024 shareholder meeting, but the session is expected to take place this spring. During the meeting, shareholders will be able to vote on board nominations, which will now include names submitted by Tryon and Blackwells. In a statement following the announcement from Value Act and Blackwells, Blackwells Ain't Tabby said that Tryon had announced that it welcomes Blackwells' engagement and describes Disney's agreement with Value Act as a defensive move that does not solve for anything. We are gratified that Tryon sees the merit, and Blackwell's nominees, given they are independent and have the relevant experience and present themselves without an agenda, Ain't Tabi said. Bringing all shareholders a real and better choice for directors is the necessary act that will support the future success of Disney. Representatives for Disney did not immediately respond to a request for comment beyond its Wednesday statements. That was Disney Board Gained Support by J. Clara Chan, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday January 4, 2024. Okay, here's this one. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday January 11, 2024. I needed light. Filmmaker Jonathan Glazer goes deep into the difficulties of making The Zone of Interest by Joshua Rothkopf. To hear him describe it, eyes lighting up and arms blocking up the imaginary space, British filmmaker Jonathan Glazer has a happy place A small post-production studio in London's Camden. It's like a lab, actually, he says. Just a room, but this size, a bit bigger, twice the height. There's a little mezzanine level up there. Screen on the wall. Glazer then drops his collaborators, a dream team. Micah's writing, Paul's cutting, I'm making the tea. He continues, referring to Micah Levy, the inspired once-in-a-generation composer who Glazer first worked with on 2013's Under the Skin, and Paul Watts. Is long-time a video- long-time editor who dates back to their videos with Massive Attack and the Dead Weather. We're moving around with one person informing the other. Meanwhile, sound designer Johnny Byrne, also recently of Nope and Poor Things, is on video hookup all day from Brighton, sharing ideas, trying out remixes on the fly. Watts is eating a sandwich. It's all very like that, Glazer said. And I think the fact that we are in the space together is how we get to where we get, because we are all in conversation with each other and with the film. Paradoxically, the film that has emerged from this uh, happy arrangement is The Zone of Interest in theaters. Glazer's radical, disquieting reinvention of the Holocaust drama set just on the other side of the Auschwitz camp wall, where a Nazi competence family somehow pretends to enjoy its private garden. As creatively nourishing as Glazer's setup setup sounds, making the film was not easy. A process compounded by the director's Kubrickian penchant for preparation and perfection. He spent a combined total of 19 years on his last two features, two on on Zones post-production alone. I'm not somebody who's going to call up an agent and say, What scripts are out there? Send me something good, Glazer58 tells me. We're speaking in a closed-door conference room that I've tried to make as un-West Hollywood as possible, uh, dialing up the lights and ordering some black coffee. It's a cool morning in LA, and his cozy brown sweater makes sense. It's just not the world I'm in. I'm more something wh- It's more something which happens inside me, which compels me to go down a certain road. Glazer's work on the movie began in earnest in 2014 when he first read the newly published novel The Zone of Interest by the late Martin Amis, a fictionalized account set in Auschwitz that the filmmaker would ultimately re-research for years and jettison most of, including its central love triangle. But even before then, Glaser had been thinking about making a Holocaust movie, always, he knew, from the point of view of the perpetrators, not the victims. Was turning 50 the spark that inspired his turn toward mortality? It never seems to be the conscious with me," he demurs about his choice of projects. I just think that there are things you come to come to at different times in your life. You're examining different things at different stages, aren't uh, aren't you? With that uh, with uh, with that experiences that you've had. He remembers growing up in 1970 suburban Hadley Wood and attending a public Jewish school during an era he describes as pretty unreconstructed. Kids would come pouring out of the school gates to get on the buses and trains to go home at the end of the day, Glazer recalls, and you would put your blazers and ties in your bag so that you'd have no school colors to identify you. and You'd keep your head down, really, until you got home. It didn't always work, he remembers, dodging the non-Jewish bullies up the road. The fact that it was a Jewish school gave them ammunition for a bit of conflict, which happened, he adds, darkly. Glazer allows the idea that what drew him to make the zone of interest was a sense of responsibility to address his memories of anti-Semitism. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, he says, but yes, I would think there probably is a part of me that felt the need to point my abilities, whatever they may be, at what subject to see whether or not I could contribute to it. That's a human responsibility, I think, before it's a trivial one. A tribal one. Three years of research into Amos's own sources led him to the real-life camp commandant Rudolf Haas, whose every mention in Auschwitz's records was exca- excavated uh, by Glazer's researchers. There was also uh, P- uh, Peter Sikowicz's essential 2014 study, The Private Lives of the SS in Auschwitz, and its volumes of testimony, much of it by teenage Polish girls who worked in the Haas' home And on the grounds, I became really struck by that. Glazer said, "The horror was in the house. Fascism started; it starts in the family, anyway. So there was something about the ordinariness and the familiarity of that ordinariness. It was just utterly captivating." When Glazer discovered at Bedrock were not the lip curling monsters of Hollywood's Holocaust movies, but social climbers looking to improve their status. What they had hoped for themselves in their petty bourgeois dreams, they're not that uh, different from ours at all, he says. It wasn't sympathy he was arriving at, so much as clarity. The filmmaker's research took him through the gates of hell themselves, where he remembers making a shattering realization. There was a single camera roll of film in the Auschwitz archive, likely taken by Hoss himself of parties and children. And this is a happy family and a back garden getting on with their lives, he says of the shots. There's no evidence in this roll of film that the camp wall was in fact the garden wall. He didn't shoot it, so that tells you a lot. Moments like this, by Glazer's own admission, drove him close to abandoning Zone as detrimental to his mental health. It's just too much darkness, too much weight, too much responsibility, he recalls. And you begin to question your motives, and it's a s place to find yourself. And I remember my wife said to me, but your job is to turn that camera around and shoot that wall that they didn't shoot. That's exactly what you're doing there. He also remembers standing on, on the campsite of the wall opposite where the Haas structure still stands. We would have heard kids splashing in the pool, Glazer says. It's the compartmentalization made manifest. I knew that wall was the center of the entire project. Shouldering the weight of the situation without recourse to sentiment became the hardest trial of Glazer's career. He ended up shooting his film on location in an adjacent house on Auschwitz's perimeter the camp's towers in view. Cameras and microphones would be concealed from the cast so as to approach the most unflinching reality possible. I didn't want to get caught up in the screen psychology of an actor, Glazer says. I felt like I needed somehow to somehow film this as if it was filming the real people. I needed to believe that they were the people they were portraying before I could have anybody else believe. Those are the ta- are tall, ta- uh, tall asks of any actor. Sandra Hewler, so electrified in Tony Erdman, and this year's courtroom thriller, Anatomy of a Fall, required, by Glazer's estimation, a year of persuasion before committing to the part of Haas' wife, Hedwig. I think she was made more comfortable by my doubts rather than by my certainties, the director says, but I knew I absolutely had to have her for that role. Whatever Hugler was wrestling over, it was surely as difficult as what was asked of Christian Friedel, chosen to play Haas himself. I didn't want Christian to pretend to vomit. I wanted him to vomit, and he couldn't, Glazer recalls. Smiling sheepishly at the heart ask he made during the filming of one of Zone's most nightmare scenes. The Kruba comparisons are not unmerited. Ultimately, actor and director studied a notorious scene in Joshua Oppenheimer's 2012 documentary, The Act of Killing, in which an Indonesian mass murderer vomits almost in mutiny with his own mind. There is always a way around, Glazer says, leaving the technical specifics a mystery. His first feature, 2000 Sexy Beasts, was a viciously funny movie about British gangsters once struck by comedic moments of dreamlike surrealism. Birth starring Nicole Kidman as a Manhattan widow who begins to suspect a young boy is in fact her reincarnated dead husband was also his. Under the Skin is about aliens. Laser's dogged pursuit of realism at all costs feels new to him and it speaks to the seriousness of his rigor. He doesn't pretend it was easy. I needed, t- uh, I needed light in there, he remembers, of the toughest moments of making its latest. I needed light in myself to carry on. I needed something holy. A kind of salvation arrived in one of Glazer's interviews during his prep period, a 90-year-old Polish woman who secretly bisled in the middle of the night as a girl leaving food behind for the prisoners. When I met her, I really felt that I had met this angel, Glazer says. I had seen that there was light there, too. There was that other thing that is in us as human beings. He includes these episodes in the film, shot in stark black-and-white thermal photography, almost like an X-ray world, punctuated by some of, some of composer Levy's most disturbing noises like belches from hell. It's hard to imagine the movie without these night flights. It is literally the inverse of everything else we've been seeing in the film, Glazer says. Since last May's Cannes Film Festival, where the Zone of Interest won the Grand Prix and award second only to the Pommé d'Or, Glazer had relaxed somewhat, though he admits to being surprised and moved by the rapturous reaction he received in France. Strangers approached him shaken, not even with questions, but simply wanting to be heard. There was something cathartic about it that they wanted to share, he recalls, and it was at that moment just people in the streets, young and old, when it really hit me that I just thought, oh my goodness, there might be something going on here that's outside of the film. Glazer pauses a wave of humility, bringing back all the questions that preoccupied him from the start a decade ago. Am I doing this because I want to make a Holocaust movie, he asks? Why am I here? What am I doing this for? Why me? Just who do I think I am to take this on? I have those doubts all the time. I lose huge amounts of sleep over this. I still do. His next film, he tells me, will be about tenderness. How tender we can be as well. It won't come for a while. Meanwhile, there is the position Glazer now finds himself in, realizing his most celebrated effort in a reinvigorated awards season with the wider implications of making a movie about violent political disassociation available to anyone who wants them. Of course it speaks to this moment, Glazer says. Of course it does but it's about who we are as a species and what we are capable of. I think the film has alarm in it. It certainly was made with that intention. We're trying to ring a warning. That was I Needed Light by Joshua Rothkopf from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. Let's close with a couple of ads from the Jewish Journal for January 19th to the 25th, 2024, here's one. Each new day, a new adventure. Your next adventure begins here. Our senior living communities are designed and curated for unique adventures, endless opportunities, and vivid experiences. Take the first step in imagining everything your next chapter can hold. The Village at Northridge, 818-659-5593, website thevillageatnorthridge.com, and The Village at Sherman Oaks. 818-245-5832, website shermanoakseniorliving.com. And SRG Senior Living Community, RCFE number 19760894, RFCFE number 197608838. Folks, it looks like that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that's happening with us Jewish folk right here, the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom, and of course, as always, peace.